So open our Bibles to um, Matthew chapter 11, where Paul read these verses. We did 11 and 12 verse by verse on Sunday, on uh, well, last Wednesday. And much of our study is actually going to be in Matthew 12 this morning. But our text, verse 28, Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. As we make our way uh, through the Gospel of Matthew, we uh, found out in chapters 5 through 7, uh, we call it uh, the Mount of Beatitudes. In chapters 8 and 9, the Lord begins to uh, display his abilities to restore sight to the blind, speech to those who can't, even raise the little girl from the dead. And he performs many mighty miracles in chapters 8 and 9. Now in chapter 10, he calls 12 of his disciples. And 10 verse 2, we find the first reference to an apostle. And so they're still disciples, but he gives his apostles the same power that he had himself, including the ability to raise people from the dead, cast out demons, heal the sick. And then the rest of the chapter is pretty much telling them what they're going to be in for, for following after him. And it's not very pleasant. Verse 22, you're going to be hated. Um, Instead of respected, you'll be despised. And then he lets them know that he has to be in first place, that he did not come to bring peace to the world, but a sword, that in your own family, there'll be those that'll be for me and those that'll be against me. So that's going to cause conflict. And then he says he has to be in first place if anybody does not take his cross and follow after him. So that's chapter 10. As we get into the first verse of chapter 11, it says, And it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his disciples, now he departs from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So they've gone out. And around that northern part of um, of the um, Sea of Galilee, he's going to primarily zero in on uh, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. But it says all their cities, so there's a a whole lot more that he's going to address. But that's at verses 20 through 29. Verses 2 to 18, he deals with uh, the rejection of uh, uh, John the Baptist. And all I'm going to comment on here is verse 10. So if you want to go there and then also hold your finger there and go to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 3. And we find, and whenever I get an opportunity, I want to be able again to point out how many times prophecy is fulfilled, almost in every chapter. And um, this is just one example. So when Jesus talks about John the Baptist, he's really referring to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, which says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And you look at um, 
Matthew 11, verse 10, for this is he of whom it is written. He is referring to Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. And then uh, as we get through chapter 11, we find um, what I wrote down, warnings of judgment. And we find here in, let's pick it up in verse 20, where he specifically talks and refers to three cities. Then he began to abrade the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And much of the study today is going to zero on the importance of repentance. And um, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sodom, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in a day of judgment than for you. And then Capernaum, this was his base. This is where he would return to. Who are exalted to heaven, you're going to be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, and Gomorrah, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, our texts are very sweet, loving words about the nature and character of Jesus' personality. But I purposely picked that for a text because I want to contrast it with what real love is because we're actually going to name names this morning and expose false teachings and false doctrines. So here we have warnings, and warning, the application would be to whom much is given, much is required. Um, Flip over to John chapter 20 um, real quick, and this would have been the first day, eight days later after the resurrection, and the principle to whom much is given Much is required. Well, you know the story. Eight days earlier, Jesus appears to the disciples and Thomas isn't there. Eight days later, he appears to the disciples again. This time, Thomas is there. And he goes right to Thomas. And he says in verse 27, Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your finger there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but belief. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Dwight, what's your point? Um, If you saw the things that Jesus did, if you saw him personally, if you were um, participants and many signs and wonders. You know what comes along with that? According to um, chapter 20, Chorazin and Bethsaida are going to be held at a higher form of judgment because of what they've seen. What does the Lord say about you and me? I've never seen the Lord. I've watched his hand, and I've seen the Lord do many mighty things over the course of my years walking with Jesus. And with that comes a responsibility. So don't feel all that bad if you've never seen, because to whom much is given, much is required. 
Good place for an amen. So that's what he's telling Thomas right here. Oh, you believe, Thomas, because now you've seen me. Well, blessed, more blessed are those who haven't seen and yet they believe. So let's go back to um, where our text actually is. And actually this morning, we've read it, but I'm going to end with it. And this morning what I'd like to do is follow through on the life of Peter and his admonition we heard last week at the conference about the times in which we live. And then I'll use chapter 12 as our primary verses that will expose uh, three false doctrines that have entered the church today. And I can't emphasize this enough because if this infection of these false doctrines permeate the church, the potential for one losing their salvation is very, very real. What I just said is very, very sobering, isn't it? So the reason, um, let's turn to Second uh, Peter, look at 16 of chapter 1 for starters. And Peter says here, for we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We actually saw him raised from the dead. Um, then in chapter 2 of Second Peter, again this is Peter, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, and they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought, bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you. That's another way of saying taking advantage of you. And I think of that especially financially. With deceptive words, For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. That's sort of the foundation of us now going back to Matthew chapter 12 and looking at the first um, um, false doctrine that has crept into the church. Let's look at chapter 12, the first eight verses. And we have the controversy of the self-righteous Pharisees being really upset with Jesus and the disciples because they were hungry as they went through a wheat field. Pick it up, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through a grain field on the Sabbath day. And his disciples were hungry. And they began to pluck the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing... what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And then he said to them, Well, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, for those were with him, but only for the priests. Let me explain this if, if you don't understand. This is when David was running from Saul. And the guys were hungry. But they went to a a city that was primarily for the priests. And the only food they had in in there would have been for the priest. 
And when we go to Israel, they actually, we actually see the, where they keep the loaves of the holy bread. And uh, they'll tell you that they could cook it on a Saturday, and it would still be warm a week later. <laughs> and I, you say that's a miracle, and that's the point. It's the holy bread. And it stayed fresh. And the high priest said, well, all we have here is, you know, the bread for the priest. But the priest gave it to David and his men. And that's what the Lord is referring to here. Haven't you guys read that? Uh, they ate the holy bread. And then he says, or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say to you, in this place, there's one greater than the temple. He's referring to himself. But if you had known what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And then he says, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If I want to do something on a Sabbath, I'm going to do it. Like heal the man we talked about on the Sabbath last week. It was a setup. They wanted to trap him. And the Lord goes right to the guy. He says, you want to be made well? The guy goes, yeah. He says, stretch out your hand. And they sought at that point on to kill him. No mercy. You know, they should have been, <laughs> should have been a, wow, this guy's going to use his hand for the first time ever in his life. But instead, they decided in their hypocrisy that they were going to um, kill Jesus. Now, this whole idea of the Sabbath um, is coming full circle, and it's making its way into the church today. Before I explain what the Hebrew Roots Movement is, I touched on it a little bit on Wednesday, but I want to go more into it this morning. Um, First of all, I want to read Mark 2, verse 27, where Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It wasn't put there for a rule, uh, but it was actually put there so that you could take a day off and kick back and and watch the Packers on Sunday afternoon (laughs) or whatever, go fishing or whatever you want to do. It's kickback time. On the, on the seventh day, the Lord rested, and, and um, it was made for you, but it was never made to be turned into some law, and as a result, not do good things on the Sabbath. Mark chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus says, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. And that's what we're, The Sabbath is part of the law. Don't think I've come to destroy the law of the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The irony of the Jewish roots movement is telling us, and I'll read it in a second, that you not only have to keep the Sabbath, but all of the law. Uh, So before I take you to Galatians, you can turn to Galatians chapter 3, and uh, as you're turning, I'm going to read a brief description of the Hebrew roots movement. I would wager everybody here knows somebody who has got somewhat involved with this teaching. And it has different levels and different forms of it, but primarily, here's a couple of paragraphs on it. The premise of the Hebrews' roots movement is the belief that the church has veered from the true teachings and Hebrew concepts of the Bible. The movement maintains that Christianity has been indoctrinated with the culture and beliefs of the Greek and Roman philosophy, and that ultimately, biblically, 
biblical Christianity taught in churches today has been corrupted with a pagan imitation of the New Testament Gospels. They hold to the teaching that Christ died on the cross did not end the Mosaic Covenant. They teach that the understanding of the New Testament can only come from a Hebrew perspective, and the teachings of the Apostle Paul, here in Galatians, are not understood clearly or taught correctly by Christian pastors today. They reject the existing New Testament text written in Greek, and this becomes a subtle attack on the reliability of the text of our Bible. If the Greek text is unreliable and has been corrupted, as is charged by some, the church no longer has a standard for truth. There are many Hebrew root root groups, but the common emphasis is on the recovering of the original Jewishness of Christianity. Their assumption is that the church has lost its Jewish roots and is unaware that Jesus and his disciples were Jews living on obedience to the Torah. For the most part, those involved advocate the need for every believer to walk a Torah-observant life and insist upon keeping, and in parentheses, all the law. Now just think about that for a second. Keep all the law. And I just throw out a couple to you. Thou shalt not lie. Anybody want to raise their hand? Get by that one? It's part of the law. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. If you're in Galatians, much of Paul's teaching, because the Lord is establishing a new covenant when he came, he actually says in um, um, Galatians 4, verse 21, he says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you really know what you're talking about? That's what's being said here. Do you really understand the law? Do you have any idea what you're saying? If you go back to chapter 3, picking it up in verse 10, he says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. What's Paul saying here? Look, if you're going to try to keep one, then you have to keep all of them, and you have to do it perfectly. Good place for an amen. Anybody ever do that? Good. It's not a trick question. Has anybody ever done that? Yes. <laughs> Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Well, how did he fulfill it? He lived a perfect life. He never stole. He never lied. He never lusted. None of the above. And he fulfilled the law. He did it so that he could impart to us his righteousness when he died on the cross, and he took our sin. How's that for a deal? Because none of us can stand before anybody with any confidence. If we're told to come boldly before the throne of grace, how can you do that if there's some sort of mark of condemnation of sin because of what you just did? David Hawking said something categorically that I believe in, but I'm glad he said it as categorically as he did. He quoted quoted a psalm or a proverb. A righteous man falls at least seven times in one day. What does that mean? That means on your best day of your whole life, (laughs) you blew it seven times either in thought, word, or deed. I was so happy when he said that because I believe that. I believe that's what that verse means. So... 
the foundation of this whole Hebrew, it's the first one that I want to point out. And again, if they hold to this, what's at stake for them? In their conscience, they know they can't do that. So it is, and I'm going to call this what it is, um, the Hebrew Roots Movement needs to be exposed for what it is. It's heresy. That's a pretty heavy word. It's heresy. It's another gospel that could affect one's own salvation. And yet, uh, people that I have a lot of respect for, or used to, uh, well-known national figures that have actually become part of the Hebrews group movement. And um, so that's the first one that I wanted to address. And it comes from, let's go back to Matthew 12. This is just one of the laws, the Sabbath. And Jesus said, no, I'm Lord of the Sabbath too. And so if I want to do a good deed on the Sabbath day, I'm going to do it. And if my disciples want to eat grain from the field, I'm going to let them. Uh, Human necessity trumps the law. So that would be the first one. The second one, we need to go to Matthew chapter 12. And uh, as I admitted on Wednesday night, we're headed into area that I do not know a whole lot about because I think there's good reason the Lord doesn't give us more insight into the demonic realm. I believe there's lines that are drawn. But in 43... Um, he says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Now, I have to stop and tell you, I do not know what that means. A demon is in a man. He goes out of the man. He's walking, and the place that he's walking is dry. What does that mean? It means that he's walking in a place that is dry. (laughs) And then he says, I will return to my house, which I came out, And when he comes, he finds it empty, sweeped, and put in order. The man who had the demon in him got cleaned up. That's what it's saying. And so what he does is he goes out and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with that wicked generation. There are different kinds of demons. Remember the girl that followed Paul around and uh, had a a spirit of of what we call a familiar spirit? In other words, she had the ability and she was being used by men because she could tell the future. And every day she she wasn't a bad woman at all, but she lost her ability Because Paul turns around one day and says, come out of her. And it says the familiar spirit came out of that girl and she no longer had the ability to foretell the future. Now, she could have been a nice girl, um, but she was still possessed. What my point is, is there's different kinds of spirits. The spirit that came in, and now it's seven times more dangerous, um, brings me to my uh, second point. And that is this, and this is where it gets dangerous. There are people who have addictions, and they can seek out a rehab center. They can go to a 12-step program, and they can can come out of that program cleaned up. 
and um, they can live a better life, uh, become more productive and a member of society. They can think I'm a pretty good person. And all this going for them, because they're now cleaned up and good, why is that dangerous? Well, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots are going to enter the kingdom of heaven before you. And he's looking at good, self-righteous Pharisees who saw no need for repentance. So what's your point, Dwight? Well, you can get your act together, go through a rehab, 12-step program, come out looking pretty good, and still die in your sins and go to hell. Why would the devil bother you if you're not repenting? Jesus said, unless you repent. Didn't we read that earlier? And I said, take note of it, the cities, Chorazin, uh, all the works that you did, and you didn't repent. That's why a harlot, what's the difference between a harlot and a Pharisee? Well, that's easy. A harlot knows she's a sinner. And a self-righteous Pharisee sees no need of repentance. So what's, again, the point? Um, the programs that have entered into the church today, there are churches that don't teach about repentance. I've never heard Joel Olstein talk about repentance or the need to repent of your sins and accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Every once in a while at the end of the program, he'll gravitate towards that and kind of suggest it. But unless repentance is the heart of... Um, well, let's turn to John... Um, 16, verse 8. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. And it says, when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. I like to say no conviction, no conversion. No conviction, no conversion. John 8, verse 24. Therefore, I say to you that you will die in your sins. You know how many good people are going to end up in hell? Because a lot of people, if you ask them, if you go to heaven, how do you know you're going to get in? Well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not as bad as that guy, but I'm better than that guy. As if God judges people on a curve. He doesn't. My Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and unless you repent, you will perish. Tough place for an amen, but a good place, Warren. Everybody knows John 3.16, but not everybody remembers John 3.18. He who believes in me is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. You see, the world is already under God's condemnation. Jesus came to save, and he did that by what he accomplished on the cross. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. I think it's dangerous um, for those that don't understand the gospel and have actually, you know, gone through some tough times and their friends come up and say, man, you need some help. Why don't you check into this 12-step program? And they'll give you a higher power. Well, what do you want your higher power to be? Well, it can be anything you want it to be, as long as it's bigger than you. Well, there are tree huggers. <laughs> if you're in India, there's over 300 million gods. 
that they worship. I've been in cities in India that are completely overrun with monkeys. They've taken over the whole city. They have a temple just built for monkeys, and they, they run the show. Why? Because they're, they're one of the gods that are there. And I've actually seen holy cows <laughs> in India. And uh, they all go right down the middle of the street. That could be your uncle so-and-so who's just been reincarnated and is making his way up. Gets enough good karma going for himself. He might not come back a cow next time. I mean, it's crazy. But yet, they have fallen for it. And the only plumb line we really have is the scriptures. So that brings me to my third one, and that is going to be in Matthew chapter 13, verses uh, 55. Let's pick it up in 54. It says, when he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogues, so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom? And these mighty works. He says, isn't this the carpenter's son? And isn't this his mother called Mary? And aren't these his brothers, James, Jose, Simon, Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works because of their unbelief. Well, why do you read this, Dwight? Because in verse 55, it tells us that Jesus had four other brothers and at least two sisters. Sisters is plural. So what? Well, in Roman Catholicism, they have what is called the perpetual virginity of Mary as a biblical view. Well, what does that mean? That there was no other children except Jesus, that he had no brothers or sisters. Houston, we have a problem. That's not what the word of God says. Well, Dwight, is it really that big of an issue to bring up? Well, maybe not just one, but how about if I gave you 23 that are not in the word of God And we have over 1 billion Roman Catholics in the world today that hang in the balance of being saved or not saved. Let me put it up on the screen for you. It says 22. I had to look up for myself the perpetual uh, virginity of Mary and when it came into the church. So there's really 23, not 22. The first one is infant baptism. So let's not just pick on Roman Catholics, I grew up in a Protestant denomination that attaches infant baptism with salvation. I sat at my Aunt Sue's funeral and I almost came out of the pew because the guy doing the funeral said, well, we know she's in heaven because she was baptized when she was a baby. And I I almost got up. (laughs) And um, I don't know what I would have done when I did. All I could think of is, this is my family. This is a family funeral. And what they're saying is heresy. And it it took everything within me to say, that's heresy and that's not true. And um, fortunately, my Aunt Sue was led to the Lord by my mom and dad, going to a Calvary chapel when she would come and visit John Higgins Church. And so uh, she was saved, but it wasn't because she was 
baptized when she was an infant. I, the way I got it figured is what's not on here is last rites. They got you from the cradle to the grave. So you have to be, have, when you're born, you have to be baptized. And then before you die, you have to have your last rites. That's not even on here, but let's go through them. In 431 AD, infant baptism. That means for the four, first 400 years of the church, they didn't mar- practice infant baptism. Yet they say it's necessary for your salvation. Question, what about the first 400 years of Christians that were never baptized as an infant? Two, the mass. Three, purging sins. Four, prayers for the dead. If I thought that a couple bucks and lighting a candle would help my loved one who's suffering in purgatory get out quicker, I'd empty my bank account, if I really believed it. They use that money, by the way, to build... Uh, St. Peter's Basilica. Prayers to Mary, worship of images. They did away with the second commandment. You won't find it uh, in Roman Catholicism. The declaring of saints, mandatory mass, the celibacy of priests. Boy, that's got a lot of people in trouble and many a lawsuit. The rosary invented, the inquisitions, indulgences soul, transubstantiation, confessing your sins to a priest. Reading the Bible forbidden, purgatory, tradition given authority, adding many books to the Bible, 1546, Mary born without sin, the popes are infallible, Mary can save you, 1922, Mary's body never decomposed, 1950, she was taken into heaven like the Lord bodily. Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19. Let's turn to them. I want you to read them for yourself and then ask yourself a simple question. Revelation 22, some of the last words of the Bible. It could be attributed just to the book of of, um, Revelation, but I personally don't believe it is because I believe that the Bible is inerrant without error from the book of Genesis to the last verse in the book of Revelation. Another good place for an amen. Okay, so what if you mess with it? And we read verses 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy of God, God shall take away his part of the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written in the book. I I have to say, because people's salvation is at stake, that Roman Catholicism is, is one of the biggest cults in the world today with over one billion people. Yeah, I know I'm going to get emails for that one. But it's the most loving thing I can tell you, friends. And it's the most loving thing you can tell your Roman Catholic friends who think they're getting to heaven outside of repentance and believing solely in the finished work of Jesus Christ plus nothing. Plus nothing. I've given you a list here of 23. And I pull it out of this one verse where they say in Matthew 13 that Jesus' brothers have names. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and a couple sisters. Family of seven. And so uh, that may feel uncomfortable, but um, this teaching, if I were to try to keep all these things, let's go back to our text where Paul read first in the beginning. 
It doesn't bring much rest to my soul. I'm never quite good enough. Because I, you know, you miss church and it's, it's a, a cardinal sin. And um, many of them have. They don't walk around with freedom and they certainly don't walk around with peace and rest for your soul. These teachings do not bring rest for your souls. But rather, they put a yoke of bondage upon you. And Galatians 5 verse 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of with a yoke of bondage. So there's a yoke that's easy, but there's also a yoke of bondage. Peter, uh, Paul said in his writing to the Philippians, 2 verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So my question this morning is, so what is the mind of Jesus like? What is one of his titles, but he is called the Prince of Peace, and that he promises peace for the person who completely trusts in the finished work of Jesus. And yet, I know a lot of Christians today that um, worry about everything. Um, We'll close this up this morning by turning back to Matthew chapter 6. And worry. Some of you are worried right now about something coming up. I want to ask for a show of hands. But if you are, you're going contrary (laughs) to what, this is not one of Jesus' great suggestions. This is his words. Let's pick it up in verse 27. Um, 28. It says, 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubic to your statue? Don't worry if you want to. What's he saying? But it's not going to change a thing. It's not going to add an inch to your height. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they, how they grow, and they neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For these things the Gentiles are non-believers. We call them just people of the world. They live for the world. John 4 says that we are not to love the world, neither the things that are in it, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Worldly people worry about that stuff, but not you. So if I'm to have the mind of Christ, what's the mind of Christ? And, I, and as I think it through, I think, hmm, I wonder if Jesus ever worried about something. Can you see the Lord walking around, wringing his hands, going, oh no, what's going to happen tomorrow? <laughs> No, he tells us what's going to happen tomorrow. He's going to come back and establish his, his throne. He's got his plans. Well, gee, Dwight, we're planning on going to the Grand Canyon. I'm taking thought about that. No, it's okay to think like that as long as you preface it with, hey, we're going to the Grand Canyon, Lord willing. So it's okay to plan ahead as long as you tack on those two words. Lord willing, we'll go to Israel. Lord willing. 
Actually, I hope I get raptured before either of those two events, <laughs> and my worrying days will really be over. I'll be honest with you. I quote this scripture to myself every single day. Honest truth. Because I find myself a week ahead of time worrying about something. Well, what if it doesn't come through? What if this does that? Dwight, take no thought for tomorrow. What are you worried about? I'm not worried about it. And I'm living inside. Let's finish the rest. For these things the Gentiles worry. But you, put your name in the air, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Do you realize if you do that how liberating that is? If you just took this practically for what Jesus says here, do you realize the freedom that it brings to you? My past is taken care of. Jesus died on the cross. I know I'm going to heaven. That takes care of the future. And that frees me up to live in the present just for today. Grassroots used to have a song. Sha-la-la-la-la-la, live for today. Nobody under 60 just knows what I just said. Everybody else does. It's a great song. Carefree, just live for today. No, it's not in the Bible. The grassroots. But it's still true because Jesus said it too. Take no thought for tomorrow. Because you'll lose your freedom if you do. And he says you'll know the truth. And it'll set you free. Well, what's the truth? Don't worry about tomorrow. Let this mind be in you that was in Jesus. And I don't believe Jesus ever worried about a thing because he knows all things. And he knew the beginning from the end because he is the Alpha and the Omega. Having said that, if you want to worry, you're a free spirit. You can worry if you want to. Good place to end the Bible study? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. That knowing your word and what it says, that we're not under a law that we're trying to keep, but we're under grace. We thank you for the freedom and for the promise where where you tell us in your word that we are to come unto you and to take your yoke upon ourselves and to learn that you're gentle and lowly in heart. And by doing this, we'll find rest for our souls. For your yoke, Lord, is easy, and your burden is light. Thank you, Jesus, so much. And help us, Lord, when we slip into um, worrying about things in the future or things that are from our past that we let them go. And we are grateful for the freedom that it brings to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.